This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today, I am with Glenn Cole once again. Hello, Glenn. Hi, Mike. For those of you who haven't heard previous discussions that Glenn and I have had, uh, he is a pastor of a Methodist church, Pennington United Methodist Church, and has been a friend for many years. Glenn and I meet once a week, usually on Tuesdays or Wednesday mornings. For how many years have we been doing that, Glenn? Uh, I've totally lost count. My I don't know, it's five or been, six or yeah. seven years, maybe. Uh-huh. Even when I'm overseas, we will schedule the call for mornings, his time, and we might miss... I don't know, three or four a year, maybe, something like that. That's about it. Pretty well scheduled, and it's good. Well, for my listeners, if you have anybody that you'd like to just spend more time with, I encourage you, just schedule a weekly meeting and make it happen. It's really good. It's just good to chat and go through life together. You were working at a different church and then went on sabbatical and then took this new position, and so I've been walking with you through all of that stuff over yeah. the years. Yeah, it's been really good. It's been really helpful. And I know that some people, and I've talked with somebody about this before, too, that the fear that this person expressed was, I'm going to run out of things to talk about after four or five meetings. And my encouragement was, no, you won't. Yeah, I can always talk about myself, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so today, Glenn and I are going to be talking about marketing. And I thought it was kind of funny. I remember... Beginning a series, I thought I was going to do a long series called Worldliness in the Church. So I went back and looked at previous episodes, and I did one, the first episode, part one, I called it, Worldliness in the Church, Self-Esteem, and that was almost a year ago now. So I do have a list of things that I think of worldly influences in the church, but for those of you who haven't heard me talk about self-esteem, you can go back and listen to that. Uh, Before we go much further, let me remind you, if you would like to send me a note or have any comments about what we're going to share, and actually I think this topic may bring up some comments from other people. I would imagine it will. You can contact me at ancientpaths at cantrell.cc. We're going to be talking about marketing, but I told Glenn before we turned on our microphones that I was going to throw him a little bit of a curve before we get into marketing And so this is the question. I was thinking about this in my last episode. I know you've listened to it. It's when my wife gave uh, sort of a testimony. I said in the introduction that Christians are not to follow the teachings of Jesus. We're to follow him. And when I listened to it later, I thought, wow, man, that might (laughs) upset a few people. (laughs) Did Mike just say you're not supposed to follow the teachings of Jesus? I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, if you have any. I know I'm throwing you a curve. Yeah. And then I have a few things that I would say to clarify, but I'd like to hear what you think about it. Yeah, and I think it's one of those situations where the statement is necessarily hyperbolic. What I mean is you say more than what you really mean for it to be. It would be like if we say, I want to follow my father, but I'm not going to follow anything that he teaches, which is not what you're saying. You're not saying we're not to follow right. the teachings of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ultimate point is it's it's him. Uh, Jesus is our salvation. He is our righteousness. He is our peace. But Christianity is not simply a worldly philosophy by which we follow a certain number of precepts. We follow a person. We Mm -hmm. are saved by a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Now, there are a lot of things that he did teach us, but Christianity, first and foremost, is not coming us coming to Christ by following his teachings. We come to Christ for salvation. He drags our dead bodies out of the water and breathes into us life, and because of that, then we listen to what he says. Because I know you, I know what you think, and I know how you believe. That's how I interpreted uh, that Mm -hmm. statement. My first thought when I heard you say that was, uh, jump back to our conversation that we had, however long ago it was, about false dichotomies. Mm -hmm. This is not a matter of either we follow Jesus or we follow his teachings, but the ultimate focus is on that we follow Christ. That is uh, who we place our hope, our trust in. 
we don't place our hope in his teachings except for the fact when he teaches, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Mm-hmm. I am the resurrection and the life. Those things, uh, but we're not placing our hope in a teaching. We're placing our hope in a person. We are called to be disciples, followers, and we are called to make disciples who actually do what he says. But we don't stand at a distance. That, As you know, that's a theme for me. We don't stand at a distance and give assent to the truth of his teachings, we have to really surrender our lives and walk with him. It is a relationship with a living God. I was thinking about, as I was preparing for today's talk and thinking about this particular point, how Thomas Jefferson took the New Testament, or the Gospels, and he got two copies that were the same copies, and he cut out all the parts that he didn't agree with. And then he put together the Jefferson Bible. Yeah. Since he was a rationalist, he just cut out all the miracles. Anytime that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of God, uh, the resurrection was gone. And that was a man who stood above Jesus himself and said, I'm going to decide which parts of what he said are true. And uh, we can't have that kind of distance. We have to submit ourselves to him. Yeah. And then, of course, we'll follow his teachings because he's the rabbi. He's the leader. Yeah. And that, right, he's God himself. And how can we refuse what God says? How can we not do uh, what he says? Once we come to that realization, um, I've heard somebody say, when it comes to the matters of the Bible and the miracles and everything else, the person had said, whenever I'm able to raise myself from the dead and have predicted it ahead of time that that's what I'm going to do, then you can listen to me. Otherwise, we need to listen to the one person that that's actually happened to. (laughs) And Jesus said that he is the Christ, he's the Son of God. Amen. And actually, that segues like very well into my opening remarks about marketing. Uh, We're going to get into this discussion about worldliness in the church And in this case, we're going to talk about marketing, and honestly, Glenn and I are not discussing if marketing has a place in the church. Uh, We're discussing the worldliness that is actually inherent in the idea or the mindset of marketing. Well, actually, that may be a little bit of a surprise, and there probably are listeners who would disagree pretty vehemently. So please hang in there, listen to us. To start this conversation, I'd like to quote a scripture that I've quoted several times in the past. It's been very, very important to me, and it lines up very nicely with what we just spoke about. And this is Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10, but it's actually verse 8 that is very applicable to this discussion right now. So I'll just read Colossians 2 uh, verses 6 through 10. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. And I just want to point out a couple of things here. Certainly in verse 8, we need to be careful not to allow ourselves to be taken captive by human traditions or the basic principles of this world. And I take away from this that, as we apply it to marketing, people who tie themselves to marketing and the marketing mindset are actually being taken captive. They're being limited There's a limit because they're being bound to the things of this world rather than Christ himself, who can do more than we can even ask or imagine, who has his own power. And this whole scripture talks about how we are to be in him. And verse 8 compares, contrasts the principles of this world and Christ himself, not the principles of this world and the principles of Jesus. Right. It's the principles of this world or Jesus himself. That for me is the context with which I approach these ideas of marketing, self-esteem. I'm going to be talking about self-love again pretty soon. I had some listeners send in some pretty interesting things on self-love in the culture. Oh, that's good. I can't wait to hear about that. Yeah, Yeah. related to self-esteem, but going a bit deeper into that. So anyway, Glenn, I'd like to hand it over to you and... You can sort of lead us in, and then I've got some stories and some other things that I'll 
chip in, but we'd like to hear from you. Well, and just for the listener's perspective, we had planned on doing this podcast on another topic, which I think we'll come back to at some point. But we began to discuss this and realize that there was a lot of life in the back and the forth. And mm-hmm. I had currently, uh, for my congregation at my church, I've been preaching through the book of Philippians. And I ran across uh, a quote probably just a couple of days before you and I began to talk about this. So it was really fresh in my mind, but it had to do with the idea of marketing within the church and not whether or not marketing is good or marketing is bad. It's that there, there are elements of marketing within the corporate world, especially in America, but within the West in general. And these principles can really influence in a negative way the way church is done and also just the message that people receive. And uh, one of the quotes, and I may read uh, several of these as we go through, but Mm -hmm. this uh, commentator had said that the leadership of churches can adopt programs and strategies that, although they're intended to aid the propagation of the gospel, which I think for every church, that is the desire, uh, is to proclaim the good news, to proclaim the gospel. And so Mm -hmm. they may adopt strategies that are intended to aid in the propagation of the gospel, but they're fundamentally flawed with the world's perspective. Thus, Christians should be wary of applying the marketing strategies of the business world to the church. And and he goes on, and I may read some of that later, but that was part of what you and I really ignited our conversation in this, Mm -hmm. is that we as Christians, as those who are in the church, uh, whether we have a leadership role or not, we have to be wary. It doesn't mean that it's completely forbidden. We just need to be aware that we don't apply and don't use marketing strategies of the business world, thinking that those are the answer. And we may need to back up a minute and just talk about what we mean about marketing and what the purpose of marketing is. Yeah, and that ties in, like you were saying, to be wary, and that's very much what Paul is seeing. See to it that no one takes you captive. And he's saying, you watch out, be aware, because if we fall into these worldly traps, then we're actually very limited. Yeah. The scope of our vision is going to be very narrow, even though we may think that we're firing on all eight cylinders and doing great and succeeding in many ways, but actually we're not doing things in the kingdom. And and some people may say, and I can hear the question uh, because it's raised in my own head at times, is, you know, what's the problem with marketing? Mm -hmm. And it's not so much marketing broadly defined as letting people know about something that you have. The problem is, is that the business world, what is typically being marketed is a product. Mm-hmm. And there is something that uh, somebody has developed or produced. And so there's a product. And so now it needs to be promoted. There's a price associated with it. Usually, and you know this, if you watch any advertisements on television or heard them on the radio, uh, as one of my siblings will say is they've created the need that I didn't know that I had, and now they want to fulfill that need that I never knew that I had. Mm-hmm. And so that is one of the issues, is uh, when we apply business world-related marketing principles, we need to be careful to think about that we don't turn what the church has to offer into a product. We have a message. There is absolutely no question about that. We have a message that no other institution on the face of the planet has, and it is the best news ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we can't think about that as a product. Yep, and in a consumer society, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast, everything can sort of become a product if you're used to being in a consumer society. This brings up a story. I guess I'll just tell it now. When I first moved to Russia, I had never intended to live overseas, and I never thought about being a, quote, missionary, unquote. And people started sending in donations to the church, and I didn't even expect it. And the financial administrator at the church uh, said, Mike, what do we do with all this? And I said, I don't know. I So I'd never really thought through fundraising or newsletters. But for people who know my history, I used to be in the performing arts. I was an actor at times, a musician. I know from experience how to manipulate thousands of people. <laughs> I can make 2,000 people laugh at the same time. I know how to do that kind of thing. Yeah. So as I started writing my newsletters when I was over in Russia, I found this temptation to manipulate 
my audience. There was this growing list of people on my email list. And I found that when I was sending out my newsletters, there was a real temptation to put, I don't know, a picture of a sad Russian orphan. And I knew that I could play on the emotions of these people that were supporting the ministry. And I knew if I did it right, I could probably get a lot of donations coming in. It was an ingrained kind of presenting this product in a way that I knew would evoke the response that I was hoping for. And the Holy Spirit really checked me on that and said, don't think of those people as a source of resources for you. He was telling me, don't think of these other people, the people in America who are sending money, don't think of them as a source of money. Think of them as a recipient of blessings so Uh that from me, the blessing would flow out of me to them. I would present what is true to them, but I didn't want them to respond to me and my emotional appeal. I wanted, I, I want them to respond to the Spirit at work in their hearts to help them in their discipleship. And if he tells people to donate to us, that's great. And if he doesn't tell them to donate to us, that's great too. I want the blessings to flow away from me to other people. But marketing is the other way. It's like we want to appeal and we want to sell this product, as you said, and then we see the people out there as consumers of what we're offering and uh, marketing ideas. We want to do whatever we can to grab as many people as possible. And there's a level of manipulation that's built into that, that God has really checked in my spirit. And he's told me many times over the years, I need to help other people do what God is calling them to do not try to get them on my team so that they'll support what I'm doing. And he is the one who's going to speak to them. I, I want them to be disciples. And with marketing, I think that's happened with some of these um, megachurches, as people are brought into the church through marketing strategies, and then they're seen as um, sources of support, I guess, for the growth of the church. And there was a quote that you said, maybe we could talk about this now, the way you catch them is the way you keep them. Yeah, and that quote has been around for a while. Who knows who actually originated it or how it actually was stated, but the idea is whatever method you use to bring people in, and we're speaking now specifically about the church, whatever the method is that you use to bring people in, that's what they come to expect, and that's what you have to do to continue to keep them. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see it a lot in youth ministry uh, that if... The way it's marketed is come to youth group because we've got free pizza and games. I know as a 14-year-old, I was going to go where there was going to be free pizza and games. Uh, (laughs) But the second that the evening turned uh, around to now we're going to sit down and we're going to read and study the Bible, and it's like, wait a minute, this is not what I signed up for. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, I've got to step back and say I was raised in a pastor's household, so I understand how youth groups can and do often work. Uh, And I'm not trying to criticize any youth group that uses pizza as a way to draw people. The the problem is, is that uh, when they, when they come in, when anybody, uh, a church attender, somebody who's in the youth, when, when they're brought in with a a certain method, uh, that's what they tend to come to expect. That essentially is the draw uh, for them. Mm -hmm. And it's a way that you have to continue to keep people or else they'll go somewhere else looking for the same kind of product. Right. I didn't have this on my list, but it brings up a story. I might have told it on the podcast before, and maybe I've told you. There was a youth minister, I won't mention the country, he's a friend of mine, and he was involved in youth ministry, and he was trying so hard to get the kids to come. Facebook messages and text messages and inviting them, we're doing all this and that, and um, much of the youth group meetings had been based on sort of having fun mm-hmm. and uh, things like that, or meeting for coffee. And, and, but then he was having real trouble getting people to respond. He was part of a big international uh, mission organization, and he went to a conference, and he met an older man at this conference, and he told this older guy, I've been just working so hard, but nobody's responding. I'm making these appeals, and we've got all these things planned, but nobody's coming. And the older man said, yeah, that's hard. I know that's really hard, and I bet you're burned out. I'm tired. But it sounds like you're being a motorboat and not a sailboat. Huh. And that's on the theme here, I think. Being a motorboat is being self-directed and using our energy and doing things the way we think they ought to be done, as opposed to waiting on the Spirit of God to do what He's going to do 
and letting him in his power do what he's going to do and speak to other hearts instead of just following principles. And it's very much on the theme of what you were saying, to let it be a spiritual work and not, uh, I keep using the word or thinking of the word manipulation, that we're not trying to manipulate people and uh, play to their desires, yeah. their selfish desires. And it can be, uh, and it can turn off some people, especially if the methods that are used to bring people into the church uh, is uh, some type of, a, of an event, or in the, as we were talking about in the youth group, if it's fun and games, and then suddenly it turns to a discussion about Christ. Uh, some people can have the opinion that, that there's been a bait-and-switch, which yep. is a term often used in sales, especially here in America, that you're brought in with the promise of something that's on super low uh, cost. It's on sale for a super low amount. But when you get there, you realize the salesperson tells you, I'm sorry, we don't have that anymore, but we do have this. And suddenly you realize that it's $1,000 more than what you were planning to pay. That is how some people can view these kinds of methods is as a bait and switch. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that also, Mike, when we were talking about it uh, before about marketing is what's the goal uh, in this, especially in the church? Uh, Jesus has given us the, our goal. He's given us the methods by which we are to operate, if that's the right word, uh, to conduct ourselves. And, you know, mm-hmm. the church is both an organism, but it's also an institution. Mm-hmm. And so how do we uh, function? And when Jesus said to his disciples just before his ascension, and you find this in Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew 28... Uh, as he's given them what we call the Great Commission, he says to them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. Based on that, based on the fact that I have the authority, I'm giving you this authority to go into all the world and make disciples. And the way that we're to make disciples is to baptize them and to teach them to observe all the things that Jesus uh, has commanded. He also says in Mark 16 that we're to go and proclaim the gospel to all nations. So when you combine these uh, in in the Great Commission, we're to proclaim the gospel and we're to make disciples, mm-hmm. and that is really our, our method and what we're to do. Now it's going to look different from town to town, from state to state, from city to city, country to country. Even it will look a little different based on the culture that it's in, but the method is really still the same. We're to proclaim good news and we're to make disciples by baptizing and teaching. Mm-hmm. However, one of the things that we have seen over probably the last 40 years is churches have become less focused on the proclamation of the gospel and more focused on a worship experience. And that's a term that you'll hear a lot in what I call church world today, is the focus on the experience versus what the message is. And uh, I was speaking with somebody else about this just a few days ago, uh, so I jotted down this note that when I was in college, uh, I had gone uh, with some friends to a restaurant. It's called TGI Fridays, Mm -hmm. and they're known uh, for their servers being very energetic. Uh, They wear a lot of medals and everything else, and, uh, and it's supposed to be a very fun environment. And so as we were sitting at the table and they brought our food and uh, our server really was good at what he did. It, it was amazing. He remembered all of our orders without writing anything down. He even remembered our names because he asked us our names. Uh, and so he was really good at what he did. The problem was when we got our food, it was maybe it was a bad night in the kitchen. Don't want to cast as, uh, aspersions on TGA Fridays, but uh, the food wasn't all that great. And so I asked to talk to a manager about it because my hamburger was dry and the French fries were soggy and whatever. And I knew that that was not the norm, so I wanted to register a complaint. But his response was not about the food, which is the primary reason you go to a restaurant. You go to eat, right? You go, you go to eat. Uh, but his response was, but haven't you had fun? And that was what he wanted to focus on. And it made me think about our churches is uh, we don't want to fall into the pattern and into the place where the message is no longer important. The message, the thing that they come to receive and eat. I mean, this is often how the Bible talks about God's word is that we feast on his word. We don't want to replace that with a good experience, you know, to to look at somebody and say, when they said, I don't really think I was fed today. 
And our response is, but hey, wasn't it a great experience? <laughs> we, right. we want to make sure that they are fed. Well, this brings to mind a question then in marketing for a church. How do you measure success? Like at the restaurant, that manager was measuring success by how much people enjoyed the experience of it, not necessarily the food. And in marketing, often those measures of success are worldly measures of success, like numbers. Have you got more people coming in the door? Or donations, you know, have you got more money flowing? Fame could be a measure of success. Oh, he's got hundreds of thousands of people watching the videos or following him on different things like that. So what is a successful church? What is it that makes the church successful? What are your thoughts about that? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's telling them it doesn't matter who's done what in the spread of the gospel. He says uh, Apollos was a very eloquent speaker, and he was also apparently someone who went and made disciples, uh, but Paul brings up uh, Apollos, and he brings up himself, and he says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? We're just ones who have planted and watered. He says, Apollos planted planted the seed of the gospel, that he, Paul, came by and watered, but it was God who gave the growth. And that's the first thing that I think about, is that all of this is ultimately up to God. He is the one who, uh, he's created the gospel, (laughs) he's uh, created the word that goes out, Uh, he says that his word doesn't go out from him without returning to it, accomplishing everything that he sent it to do, and so he's going to do what he's going to do through his word, through the gathering of the body. Uh, and so I think we can fall into the trap that it's up to us to do more than what we're actually called to do. Mm-hmm. That uh, when we take away from the Holy Spirit what the Holy Spirit's job is to do, we're just to be faithful. Uh, as I heard one pastor say, "Is my job is to set the table before the people, uh, but it's the Holy Spirit who then uh, takes that food of the Word and of the gathering and, and the singing and everything, and then uh, feeds the people with that. Mm-hmm. So we, we have to be careful what our role is and what the Holy Spirit's role is. Ultimately, it's God who gives the growth mm-hmm. in this. And so I know that it can be t- uh, tempting. It's a huge temptation for us as pastors to look at numbers. You know, mm-hmm. are, are we growing but if that if that's my goal as a pastor is to grow my church in terms of numbers, uh, quite frankly, it's not that hard to do, mm-hmm. uh, and you can do it by doing a lot of flashy whiz bang stuff. You're going to get people coming into your door that way. But is that really the goal? Is that what we're mm-hmm. supposed to be doing as pastors and as churches? And I think it goes a lot deeper than that. Just having uh, people come through the door, it is to to feed the believers uh, as they come. And hopefully those believers are going out and inviting other people uh, to come to hear what God has to say. Yep, a measure of success in the church would be our people actually walking with Jesus, individuals. And I've mentioned before that we have a in the West, in America in particular, a spectator society. And a measure of success is not having more spectators, more people watching the service. A measure of success is life. And little churches that don't grow in numbers, but their people are growing in the Lord and in maturity, that's success. Yeah. And um, that's very humble. Some of my listeners aren't in Western cultures, and so it may be different over there. But I know even in African churches I've visited, there's often kind of a push, the bigger, the better. The more you have of people or the more money or the bigger building you have, then those are signs of success. I will mention it here. It's not really an advertisement for it, but I'm listening to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's very interesting. I'm just on the second episode. But already they've talked about how that became a very, very big church movement. And there were people that were on staff, pastors on pastoral staff, uh, that when the church fell apart for different reasons, some of those pastors now say they're not Christians. Not only have they walked away from pastoral work, they say they're not Christians anymore. In those cases, it's certainly not true of everybody that was involved with Mars Hill or related churches, but you can clearly say, well, they weren't making spiritual disciples of Jesus. Those people must have been involved in a movement or a feeling, or they were excited about something. But then when the thing that they had mm, hooked themselves to fell, 
their faith was deeply tied up in that church itself or in that man who was leading as opposed to their faith being in Jesus himself. And years ago, our church in Russia uh, treated us pretty badly, hurt us pretty badly. The people there who were dear friends did some things that really hurt us, but that didn't shake our faith. Our faith is in Jesus, not in the church. Uh, David Pawson talks about people who practice churchianity instead Uh, of Christianity. And that's tied up, I think, in this idea of marketing that... Well, I'll tell this I'll tell this story. There were two young fish swimming along, and then this old wizened fish comes by and he says to the two young fish, The water's great today. And he goes on, and the two young fish stay there. And after he's gone, one turns to the other and says, What's water? <laughs> and this marketing mindset can be so thick. In American culture or Western culture, we don't realize that that's what actually surrounds us and that there's a world beyond that way of thinking, that it's all about numbers and flash and show and attracting people by these world's systems. One tenant of marketing or sales is the customer is always right. It can happen, like you were saying, that if you don't get people coming in, then you change things to appeal to the customer. You change the message to appeal to people so they'll come in. But when you get people in a church who have that mindset, the customer's always right, and the church is a place where we come to consume. And if we don't like the church we're in, then we'll go to another one that makes us feel better. And honestly, I think that's a pretty common attitude in Western churches right now. Well, then you get churches full of people who are convinced that they are right about anything that's their preference or even a sincerely held belief and that the church should conform to what they want, what makes them happy. And if they're not feeling happy or feeling good in a church, then there's something that's wrong because the customer's always right. But to enter the kingdom, the first step is to admit that you're wrong. That's repentance. The very first step is to say, oh, I've been wrong about things. I've been looking at it wrong. I'm on the wrong side of God's uh, desires. I'm on the wrong side of history. That's repentance. i got to have a new mind. And that's the direct opposite of a marketing mindset, where the customer's always right, and we have to appeal to what pleases people, as opposed to the gospel, which is, man, it brings a sword, and it cuts all the way down deep inside our spirits, and it brings division in our own hearts. And we have to admit, I'm wrong, and I need to be saved. I'm on the path of death. I'm drowning. I'm dying. And marketing just it won't fill that spot. It won't. When John the Baptist was preaching, man, he didn't appeal to people. He called. He said, you brood of snakes, who told you to flee yeah. from the coming wrath? I mean, he, he wasn't worried about marketing or drawing people in. Yeah, what I love about that statement about John the Baptist when he says, you brood of vipers, what he's, he's calling them snakes, but he's also calling them sons of snakes, yeah. that, <laughs> that yeah. your fathers before you were also man. snakes. Yeah, it was not a popular message. It, it makes me think about... When people walk into the doors of a church, regardless of their belief, if they've been highly influenced by the world's thinking, when they begin to hear the teachings of Scripture, the teachings of Jesus, it can be offensive, especially the message of the cross. We're told that the message of the cross is folly. Uh, It can be a stumbling block. And so when you hear the message that you don't agree with, but it's God's message, there are a lot of people who turn around and walk off and say, I want nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. But if we think about it from strictly a marketing standpoint, our desire will be to somehow retain those people who have come in the door. And so the temptation is to either soften the message, change the message, or not highlight some of those things. We're told there will be suffering. There's hope in the midst of the suffering and at the end of the suffering. We're not told that we'll be taken out of the curse, but that we'll be saved through the curse. This is not a popular message today. Jesus himself, as he had a thousand plus people gathered around him uh, because they liked the fact that he was feeding them lots of food, and he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And by the droves, they turned and walked away. Right. And the only people who were left were his disciples. Now, Jesus was a lousy marketer because he lost thousands of people in one day. And he looked at his disciples and said, are you going to 
leave too. And of course, Peter says, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. And so we have to uh, resist what the world would say. And we've got to remember that the world's marketing principles have been developed in a fallen and unbelieving world system. Mm-hmm. So again, just to be wary of these, to make sure that they are rightly applied when we do, that we don't soften the message, that we don't take away from what we're given to proclaim, the whole counsel of God, and sometimes the, the counsel of God is hard. Uh, it's hard news uh, to hear that believers in this day and time were going to suffer persecution. Uh, but... As Jesus said, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Yep, and you just said Jesus was not really good at marketing. <laughs> I was thinking about the times that he healed people, and he said, don't tell anybody about this. Yes. It's got to be a movement of the Spirit of God, the power of God, and not just human beings talking to each other about things. It really has to be something that God does. Uh, which brings me to another story, if I may. Yes. When I moved over to Russia, I had this idea that missionaries plant churches. Right? I'd never really thought about it deeply. So when I moved over to Russia, I was sent over to help start and then direct a charity that worked primarily with orphans, but I had in my mind that I should go start a church. I wrote to a friend of mine, an elder at a church in Texas, and I asked him about church planting. And he said, planting a church is not like making a cake. So when we make a cake, we follow a recipe. We get the eggs, the oil, the flour, we have the oven at the right temperature, we follow all the rules, and then when we're done following the recipe, then we get the results that we expect. We get a cake. And he said, planting a church is not at all like that. If you follow a church recipe, well, we need to find a good worship leader, let's find a good youth leader, let's find somebody who teaches well, and if we mix all those things together, then we have a church, and we'll be successful. Mm -hmm. And he said, it can't be that way. To plant a church, to start a church, it has to be the movement of the Spirit. It has to be something that God himself does. And probably within a year, I was in Russia. I had been there just not very long, you know, about a year, maybe 18 months. And a group came in that wanted to start an English language church in St. Petersburg. And they were a pretty big group of people who had planted churches in other places. And they approached me. Now, I didn't know them very well at all. And they asked if I would be the teacher in this international church. And I already knew enough to be very wary about that. It appealed to my ego, but I had no relationship with them, really. I knew the people, but to ask me to be a teacher in a church without really knowing me well, that was uh, a warning sign. And I said, well, tell me about the team. I can't remember exactly what it was. We have a worship leader coming from Australia. We have um, a youth leader coming from California. We have um, somebody else, I can't remember what the other things were, just people coming together. I said, oh, how long has the team been together? Oh, well, well, they haven't met each other. When they get here to Russia, we're all going to meet. You know, I was so glad that I had this conversation with this elder about church planting not being like a recipe, because here they were doing exactly that thing that I had been warned against. And it didn't last, because they didn't know each other. There was no spiritual unity So that story also connects with this idea of marketing. If you follow the right steps, then you will get the outcome that you expect. And there's a a sense of manipulating human beings in marketing, that we can manipulate them in such a way that we'll get them to act the way that we want them to. And that's just not the way the kingdom of God works. Yeah, and there is somebody within... Uh, American Christianity, who holds uh, high regard in this area. Um, and uh, i got to be careful about what I say, how I say it, because I know that there are a lot of people that may revere this guy. Okay, so you know, before Glenn gets into this, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really know much about this. You know, he's going to talk about Charles Finney. Bear with us on this, because we need to hold everything up and uh, judge things wisely. So, yeah, Glenn? So there's still, even today, a huge influence, uh, especially in the American church. I think it's, um, it's bled out all around the world, but uh, influenced by Charles Finney. He was an American pastor and theologian uh, back in the early to late 1800s is when he was most active. And I think the point that I want to make without getting into all of his uh, writings and everything else is something that he called uh, new measures. And what he said essentially is that if you design the worship service in such a way that you can produce conversions in people, 
However, what Finney said was that God's divine agency in that conversion really wasn't necessary. That all you had to do is to, as you were talking about building that church, is to have the right ingredients within the worship service, which a lot of it was, as you go back to talking about manipulation, a lot of it was built on emotional manipulation, whether through music or whether through the style and the fervor of the preaching or anything else. What Finney believed is that the new birth was not really a work of God. And so you could create a revival, you could plan for a revival, as long as you had these right elements within the the meetings, it would produce a certain result, conversions or whatever it might be. And I don't want to say that uh, that some of these conversions were not genuine. The Holy Spirit can work through anything, right. but we also have to understand that these things are not methods that are given to us in Scripture. He believed that you really didn't need to preach Christ and Him crucified. If you simply put the right ingredients together, you could produce this result. One thing that he did say is that a revival is not a miracle. It's not dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is purely a philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. Now, remember, he's writing in the 1800s. We may not talk uh, quite this way, but he says it's purely a philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means, as much so as any other effect produced by the application of means. In other words, you get the methods right, and you'll have the result that you're looking for. And Finney's methods had been used, I think are still used in a lot of churches, to produce in people a response of some sort versus looking at what happened on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches essentially the gospel, law and gospel, mm-hmm. repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and the people are cut to the heart. And yep. it you know makes me think, again, I've been preaching through Philippians, so Philippians is really on my mind right now, but how was that church in Philippi created? It was created through the gospel. Uh, Paul met some people down by the river on the Sabbath, and he began to preach the gospel to them. And suddenly, there's a community of believers, Lydia and some of the others. Mm -hmm. They came to faith in Christ, and a church was born, a congregation was born. And the main ingredient in that was Paul preaching Christ and him crucified. Right. Right. Not bringing in a worship leader and a you know this and yeah. a that, uh, then try to create a church. The church was created through the, the proclaiming of the gospel, and then um, was applied. Okay, we need a we need a pastor. We need elders. We need others in the church yeah. uh, here uh, to function the way Christ wants His body to function. Right at my church in Russia, I remember we would have people come and visit because our church was very active in street ministry, ministering to prostitutes and drug addicts, and the teaching was solid, and uh, the worship services were really, really meaningful and free. And people would come from other churches, and our pastor, John, would talk to them and discourage them from joining our church. Uh. He would say, tell me about your other church, why did you leave there? And often there were some issues there, and he would say, you go back and resolve those issues with your church, because he was very, very committed to church growth by conversion, not by transfer. And I was at a meeting here. I'm in Athens, Georgia right now in the United States. Uh, Maybe 10 years ago, I was at some gathering, and I was talking to a pastor. I didn't really know who he was. He had moved here recently to be with the church plant. And I was talking about the, I don't know if I'll say necessity, but how churches should grow primarily by conversion. If you're doing a church plant, if you're only getting people transferring from other churches, the kingdom isn't advancing, really. Right. I mean, and as a matter of fact, you're giving an outlet for people to dodge perhaps some hard issues that they might face in the church where they were. And I was talking to him about this, that really churches should grow by conversion. And uh, later I found out he was on staff of this church that had moved in this area, and their primary growth was pulling people from other fellowships you know, uh, having a better children's ministry, a better youth ministry, a big building, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, big campus, big facilities, but most of their growth was coming from other churches locally. Later on, I understood the look on his face that I saw because I was basically telling him that his church growth model was just not correct, that it's got to be by conversion, and that's what you're talking about in Philippi. 
It's conversion. It's the change of a heart. But so much of marketing is either drawing Christians from other fellowships to get into you know our place, or to get unbelievers to come, but not, I don't know, not really to challenge them to die to themselves as the necessary step of being a disciple of Jesus. And I know colleagues who have planted churches in areas where uh, it's underserved. There's just, you know, the closest church may be 15 miles away, uh, especially in rural areas. And so planting a church uh, there can provide those people with a fellowship that's closer to home. But even at that, if I'm driving 20 miles to a church and I've been in that church for 15 years, that is the family that God seems to have placed me in. Uh, I really should stay committed to that, uh, even if there's, you know, suddenly there's one three blocks away. Yeah, and it makes me think, a friend of mine in Russia is an Orthodox Christian, and I asked her a very Protestant question, tell me about your church, the people there, your friends, and the connections you have, and she said, oh, it doesn't matter. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, it's an Orthodox church. The service is the same at every church globally, so I can go to any Orthodox church, whatever's nearby, and I'll be a part of the service but she felt like she didn't really need to know the people or have a real community where she plugged in as a member of that particular body. Uh, and to me, that's a, a bit dangerous because God wants us submitting to one another. Well, you go back to Philippians again, I mean, and Paul preached the same message just about unity uh, in Ephesus and other places, uh, Corinthians. Uh, it's, it's something that our congregations have to deal with uh, because that is just the nature of people being together. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean there's not going to be conflict, but we're not to allow conflict to fester. And so this is why Paul says in several places, uh, but especially in Philippians, that we're to consider others more important, more significant than ourselves. We're to to do things, uh, to strive side by side for the sake of the gospel, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is a very different kind of life than, um, you know, come to our church to have this amazing experience on Sunday when all of a sudden you realize that the person sitting across the aisle or next to you on the pew, you suddenly have a disagreement with about something, whatever could have come up. And that's not what you signed up for. You didn't sign up for conflict. You didn't sign up for these things where you have to work through, where you have to lower yourself humble yourself, submit to this other believer out of reverence for Christ, uh, because that's not how you were drawn in uh, to this church. And the, the joining together of the fellowship can be a difficult thing. And honestly, it's not for the faint of heart. The Christian life is marked by joy. It, that's probably the central characteristic of the Christian life is joy, but even in the midst of that, there are going to be difficulties that we face together, and that's why we rece- we see repeatedly throughout the Scripture, especially in the New Testament, uh, that we're to work together, we're to work for unity, we're to fight for unity. Yeah. And you just don't see that in some of the, as we go back to the topic of marketing, it's presented as everything is rosy and you know glorious, and this is just going to be the greatest experience of your life, Mm -hmm. uh, when sometimes it's just, it's hard. I've been in countries where they were in their first generation of believers, in these communist, atheistic countries where churches were planted back in the 90s, and when I met them, they were still in their first generation of Christians. In some cases, there was only one church in a city. If you were a Christian and you wanted to have fellowship, you had to be in that group, and that was the first century. So in Corinth, you couldn't go church hopping. There's one group of Christians, and you have to get along. And so, okay, I think I can speak with some authority on this because Olga and I have fought this fight. If we just leave a fellowship because we're having trouble with somebody else, that is not making an effort for unity. I don't want to condemn anybody or make anybody feel bad, but to dodge the situation really isn't making an effort for unity. It's just sort of pulling away and finding some other thing. We've been through hard things in churches, but we've really fought for unity. Sometimes we can't have it, honestly. We did our best. The scriptures say, as much as it's up to you, live at peace with all men. But there comes a time when it's not up to me if the other people don't want to live in fellowship with me. Yeah. But this, like you say, we loop back to marketing. If you're sold on the idea... We're going to come to church, we're going to have this nice experience, 
to be a Christian is a life of victory and health and wholeness, and then something hard comes along, then we feel like, well, wait a minute, that's not the product that I'm paid for. I'm not getting a return on my investment. And that's not the church. That's not the kingdom of God at all. Well, in Philippians, it says our attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, who he didn't consider equality with God something to hold on to. He let go, and he lowered himself all the way down until he became nothing. And the marketing idea is you get this product, and it'll fulfill your self-esteem or your sense of self-worth, or you'll feel like you're participating in something that's bigger than you, but it's still a a selfish thing instead of uh, self-surrender. And I will be talking about self-love. I'll give a little, uh, just a little preview. One of my listeners wrote, so please, listeners, please write to me. It's great to hear from you. He sent a screenshot of a YouTube video called uh, Party for One, How to Make a Wedding Cake for Yourself because it's important to love yourself. I think that's what it was. I don't have it right here in front of me. It's from the New York Times, like a video from the New York Times. There's a guy smiling with this little tiny wedding cake with a solitary figure on top. And so the idea is it's so important that we love ourselves, so important that we take care of ourselves, so important that we have a party for one, because that's really important. And I thought that is just one of the saddest things I've seen isolated, (laughs) building a, making a little wedding cake for yourself, marrying yourself, I guess. But so much of what is in the culture now, and it gets into the church, is it's all about you. Your church experience is about you, and you feeling good about it, and you being built up. Uh, We have to deny ourselves, what Jesus said. If you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. That's the first thing in his list of things that have to happen, is self-denial. I will talk some more about it. I saw a big article in the paper about loving yourself and why it's so important to uh, take the oxygen mask first before you give it to somebody else. Oh, like on an airplane. Yeah. Right. I'll talk about why that's a flawed analogy, though it sounds right. There's so much in the world that is so close to the truth, but it's not the truth. Well, one of the things that the world will teach, and we hear it in a lot of popular, uh, and I won't name names because that's not the uh, the point of what we're doing, but there are a lot of very, very popular and influential people that will teach that the answer is within inside yourself, to look within, that that's where your truth resides, and the answer to your peace is by uh, getting in touch with yourself, essentially to look within for the answer so that you can have peace without And what we are told in Scripture, what we're taught, what is made plain to us is that the problem is actually in us, that inside of us is actually the problem. As Jeremiah said, the heart is wicked above all things. It's deceitful. Who can understand it? So the problem is within, and we need to look without for the answer so that we can have peace within rather than the reverse. And that's uh, it's a crucial opposition to the world's teaching. And again, it's not popular because it's really popular to understand, to be marketed that you are the, the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. That's a really popular thing, and it makes us feel good, makes us feel powerful. And yet what we realize is that without Christ, apart from him, we can do nothing. We're weak. Yeah, amen. Well, actually, it's great that you said that. When I was driving down here for this recording, that scripture came to mind. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And a lot of people build their lives, and they think that it's brick and stone, but it's really hay and wood, and it's all going to get burnt up on the last day. I've been thinking, and I've shared this on the podcast, I think. I shared it with Sunday school class a couple weeks ago. Everything that we own will belong to somebody else at some point. Mm-hmm. None of it survives, ultimately. And even ourselves, if we put our hope in ourselves, then we're lost. So, amen. Uh, I have one story, another little thing that happened, that's along this theme of marketing. And I'll tell the story. It's about my friend. Well, I guess maybe I'd better not mention names. Some of these people may be listening to the podcast after all. <laughs> hey, that's me. <laughs> yeah, right. You talk about me all the time, I know. Yeah, I know, I'm sorry. So this friend of mine is a missionary. He has extensive work overseas in a wide variety of cultures, just to give you a little background. I met him in Russia. He had been ministering in Ukraine. He planted churches 
whole family of churches in an African nation, which I won't mention. And now he lives in a European nation, and he's getting ready to move to another African country to set up a ministry that I think I'll be involved in, and maybe I'll talk about that in a future episode. And his home church here in the United States has some younger people involved in leadership now. The older generation is handing things off to the younger generation. And so he got an email from one of these younger leaders, and they are planning to uh, make changes to the way that they present things in their church meetings. And so he got an email. I'll read this. They want to have a video that accompanies discussion about missions. And so they sent out an email to the team, the ministry team, including my friend, with an example of a video that they might use. Mm -hmm. And here's what the person writes. I don't know who wrote this email out, but he said, he or she said, I'd like to amp up our monthly missions videos with animations. So that's the first thing. want to amp it up, get a little more power, a little more pop, you know. So these monthly missions videos. And then he says, I found the below template that can be applied to the videos that are compiled for our newsletters. Let me know what you think. This video would pop up when we start talking about what areas of the world that we're talking about that month. And then the, the person writes, you know, we have to pay a monthly subscription and we need to train our staff. And then there's a link to the video and the email says, this is the video that the church leadership suggested. And then there's this link. And I watched this video and it's, it is a template for how you could do announcements. I think it was set up by a, some organization for churches, and this one was based on the Russian Federation. And so you could see airplanes flying, you could see maps zooming in, there's this music with a rock beat or a, maybe a techno-pop beat, boom, 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 you know. So my friend's reply to this was, I will say that I like the possibilities, like of using... Uh, new videos and things. But, he said, I do not like this demo. It's all flash and techno pop, YouTube channel, pull me in with lights and wow. If the music tracks can be anointed and substance outweighing the flash, I may be in. I'm all for improvement and moving ahead. Don't mean to be a wet blanket, but I would like to see what a Christ centered presentation could look like with something like this, not a travel channel. And I thought he just really picked up on something like we're talking about. You can really lose sight of the actual message when you're focusing on the means. And he says, you know, you're just trying to grab people with lights and flash. And he said, it's got to have the Spirit of God. And I want to see that. I don't want to see this flashy, worldly stuff going on. Yeah, that's and it makes me think of, of a couple of things. Again, to go back to this author's in this commentary that I was reading, his comment just that we need to be wary of the world's uh, principles and methods and everything else. And this is one of those cases where I think um, your friend, it was really incumbent upon him to be wary of what is the message that we're trying to send. We should not in any way present the gospel or about have anything in our worship services, we should not intentionally be boring. Uh, it, you know, shame on me as a pastor if I get up in a monotone voice and try to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Uh, you know, that is not how it's supposed to be done. But also, when I begin to lean on the world's methods or, or to construct my sermons in a way that are designed to produce an emotional response— in the person, rather than the good news of what Christ has done for us, naturally producing an emotional response of gratitude mm -hmm. uh, or sorrow over sin or whatever it might be, uh, that's where we really have to be careful, and it's a fine line that we uh, have to walk. Well, Glenn, how do we wrap this one up? Well, a, a couple of things, and uh, I know that as we've gotten uh, through the conversation and the discussion, some people can walk away with the idea that we're bashing on some churches. I think the thing that we need to walk away with is just that we need to be careful and mindful and thoughtful of the methods that we employ in the church, and our guidebook, if you will, uh, really should not be a, a secular textbook on marketing. 
uh, we need to be careful, need to be wary of, of how we employ and use these things. So I, I don't want anybody to think that we're intentionally bashing on churches. We're just pointing out how these things can be problematic because the focus can be on a goal or a product that really isn't the product that we as churches are supposed to be focused on, which is proclaiming Christ and Him crucified right. uh, for the salvation of people, uh, making disciples. Amen. Well, then let me wrap it up with what I started with. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. And that's our purpose for Glenn and myself. We encourage our listeners, the people where we have some influence, to always turn to Christ and walk with Him and not follow any human traditions or any human philosophies because those things are hollow and they're deceptive and they're, they'll limit us. Glenn, thank you so much. Thanks again for having me, Mike. I really appreciate these times and this yeah, opportunity. Yeah. Maybe we'll talk about self-love next time. Which reminds me, my wife and I have a lot in common. She loves me, and I love me. (laughs) I probably should have ended on a better note. Oh, that's bad. Okay. Well, listeners, thank you so much for bearing with us. And Glenn and I pray that you will turn your heart to the Lord and listen for His voice. And um, His ways are always good. Amen. And they always lead to rest for the soul, even in the middle of hardship or challenges or tribulation. He is a rock. So, again, Glenn, thanks much, and we say goodbye to our listeners for now. God bless. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.